If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Hello, ho, ho, everyone, and happy holidays, no matter what you celebrate or don't. Everyone is okay, but Josh had some unexpected health issues this week, landing him in the hospital for a couple of days, but he is home now and doing great. Because of that, we're taking the holiday week off and getting some much-needed rest. Before we share our second episode of Deduce from Patreon, we wanted to update you on the Wilma Acosta case. Wilma has been missing since the early morning hours of November 26th after a night out with friends. First of all, everyone supporting the search for Wilma has been amazing. The petition at change.org urging the Portland police to investigate her case properly is up to 1,418 signatures of 1,500, so let's get that to the goal, like, today. The Facebook group Searching for Wilma Acosta has over 1,000 members. The GoFundMe is up to 4865 of $5,000. As we spoke with Wilma, Wilma's mother of the same name, she wanted to refuse to create a GoFundMe or Venmo because she does not want money. She wants Wilma. But she was reminded that the money is for flyers, rewards, a private investigator, legal support, and all of the unexpected costs they have incurred. So please keep giving. As soon as we know the Venmo or Cash App information, we will share it. Wilma's family has joined forces with the United Justice Group, the group put together by the families of the victims of the alleged serial killer earlier this year. They have been incredible, standing with Wilma's family to bring attention to their case and provide all of the support they can. They know exactly how it feels to not only be thrown into this kind of scenario, not knowing what to do, but to have also had the police dismiss their cases. United Justice Group was able to get their contact from KPTV, our local Fox outlet, to meet outside City Hall the other day to allow the family to speak about their frustrations. Here, have a listen. So it has been nearly a month since 28-year-old Wilma Acosta went missing after leaving a bar late at night in Old Town. Well, now Acosta's family is connecting with the families of five women who were found dead around the metro area this year to find comfort in this uncertain time and keep spirits high during their efforts to find her. Fox 12's Connor McCarthy spoke with the family today. He joins us live at Tom McCall Park where Acosta was last seen. Well, Riel, here at the Japanese American Historical Plaza is where Wilma Acosta's phone last ping, and since then, she has not been found. Now, Portland police say that Acosta had a, a history of depression and suicidal ideations, but her family says strongly that is not true. Now, Acosta's family is getting help from families here in the Portland area who had a similar experience earlier this year. All around Governor Tom McCall Waterfront Park near Old Town, missing person posters hang on light posts and trees with the name and face of 28-year-old Wilma Acosta. It was at the Japanese American Historical Plaza where her phone was found, but Acosta could not be located. She was very happy. She just bought a Dalmatian dog. She got the car that she wanted, a Jeep. She had appointments to, to go on vacation in two weeks. 
Nearly a month after Wilma went missing, family and friends gathered outside of City Hall, demanding Portland police do more to find her. I'm not anti-police, I'm pro-police, I back the blue. I'm nothing against that, it's just the women out here, my sister, they, they, there needs to be more help out here. Wilma's brother, Michael Lopez, says he would have never thought he and his family would be in the situation. Looking for a sister who just moved to Portland from San Jose, California, to work at Kaiser Permanente. It feels like I guess anyone could be in this situation. You're never going to know when to expect it or see it. Wilma was last seen right after Thanksgiving, leaving Dixie's Tavern shortly after 2 a.m. Portland police say the video shows her walking up to the seawall along the Willamette River. They believe she had suicidal ideations and depression, which they noted in their initial media release, something Lopez says his family strongly disputes. Someone stopped her from point A to point B. She was on her way home. Someone stopped her from point A to B. I, I know that. You know, it's just uh, getting the, the proof of that. Or let's just say they were accurate, right? And they said they went in there. Where's the dive team? I don't see no dive team. They never went in there to go search. To help find answers, Wilma's family reached out to the United Justice Group, a group created by the families of the five women who went missing, then found dead around the metro area this year. We know we can only do so much to help, but whatever that is, we're going to fight right alongside this family, and we will be heard. For Melissa Smith, Kristen Smith's mother, meeting Wilma's family Friday was even more important because it's the one-year anniversary of when she filed a missing persons report for her daughter. We have a person of interest in our case for these girls, and I have made it known I'm not giving up. I will not give up, and I will fight till my death for justice for my daughter. And if I have to come out here and help these other families, and be heard, so be it. We're doing it. We're not giving up, but we need help. Portland police sent Fox 12 a statement that reads in part, quote, the Portland Police Bureau's missing persons unit has been dogged in its approach to determining what happened to Wilma. Our detectives have spent more than 100 hours interviewing witnesses and examining footage for more than a dozen security cameras. During her walk, it does not appear that Wilma engaged with any other people. Ultimately, PPB's evidence shows Wilma leaving the bar herself and arriving at the seawall by herself. PPB detectives do not suspect foul play in Wilma's disappearance. We hope Wilma's family and friends are able to find closure soon. Wilma's family says there's more to her disappearance and they won't give up until they get answers. It seems like um, we're just left in the dark and not getting no answers. and. We need help. We need the voices to be heard for all these women. On top of my, my sister, like, I feel she's not getting no attention, no help. My stomach is twisting, turning, like having nightmares because I don't know what else to do um, besides what we're doing, just try to get, get the word out. The only change to that interview that Mike, Wilma's brother, said that he would have made is that he doesn't even want the mention of suicide, medication, or hospitalization to happen. There continues to be no sign of Wilma struggling in that way whatsoever. It appears to be a catch-all to allow the police to not investigate. As I mentioned in the update last week, last Saturday, the family did have two boats taken out on the Willamette River, near where the phone had been recovered. The experts aboard both boats felt that they had found a shape worth investigating closer, meaning with divers. The family gave the police this information, so the next day, last Sunday, they did take boats out and claimed to find only logs and no divers were put in the water. Because the family has been left to their own devices, it took until this last Saturday, the 23rd, to get divers out on the water. Amazingly, the team from Oregon Rescue Divers offered their help. They are based out of Bend and were actually coming from Idaho, where they had just helped with a dive. 
And even though they spent their entire morning unexpectedly at Les Schwab replacing their blown tires on the boat trailer, they still came all the way to Portland and got on the water. They went over that same space of water near where the phone had been found and where the shape had been. It was like a fine-toothed comb. They just went up and down the water over and over again. Because it had been a week, the shape was not found. They did continue upriver in case whatever it was had drifted, but I did not hear of anything being located. This is another example of contradictions within the police. If they are so certain that Wilma took her own life by leaping into the water off of the bridge, wouldn't they still want to send a team to recover her? Why does it take the family showing signs of a body to get them out on the water? If you can, please go to OregonRescueDivers.org and donate. Their help has been so appreciated by Wilma's family, and they asked that their information be shared along with the gratitude they have for the help. Supposedly, Wilma's mother will be able to view the footage from the steel bridge that the police are finally in custody of. The meeting has been canceled several times already, so she is hoping that they will stick to the Wednesday morning viewing. We will keep you posted on the Facebook group if the family would like support for this. I think that if a group of supporters were with Wilma as she goes to the appointment, perhaps they would be less likely to cancel. We don't know if that footage will show Wilma taking her life, being taken by others, or showing that the footage is not clear and what happened at the bridge is unknown but hopefully the family will have some answers after Wednesday. As for now, that's the update. As I said, please follow the Facebook group. If you aren't in town or you aren't comfortable coming out for vigils or searches, share her flyer, sign the petition, give if you can. This is a family that had plans to drive Wilma's piano up from California for Christmas, not spend it in her apartment, wanting nothing more than her safe return. Thank you again, you guys. This family is so beautiful, and on a personal note, they have been nothing but warm and welcoming to me. Their strength, love, and patience is truly inspiring. As Wilma has taught me, I will keep looking out for human kindness. There's a lot more of it than I realize, but she seems to have a knack for seeing it everywhere. Now, on to our second Deduce episode from Patreon. Happy holidays, everyone. Deduce. Welcome back to another episode of Deduce. Obviously a lot of echo and reverb on that. Yeah, obviously. Today I'll be telling you four news stories. Stories of true crime, bizarre ailments, a black widow, and false teeth. Some of the stories may be true, some may be outright false. It will be up to you to deduce the truth. Will I be able to trick you into believing a fairy tale, or will your powers of deduction prevail? Let's get to it. Deduce. Our first story is called Leapin' Lizard. One of the best parts of travel is exposure to the local wildlife. I, for one, am drawn to certain locations based solely on the sharks I can dive with. My dream vacation is to visit South Africa to go on a safari and a great white dive so I can see the world's most majestic beasts in person. For four-year-old Lena, the wildlife she encountered on a family vacation nearly took her life. In August of last year, Lena Mars showed her parents, Julian and Louisa, a small bump about the size of a dime on the back of her left hand atop the middle finger. 
Even though Lena said the bump didn't hurt and she wasn't feeling sick, her parents decided to take her to the doctor. All the pediatrician could come up with was that the spot was most likely a cyst. There wasn't much that could be done with it, so he told them to keep an eye on the bump and to look out for possible symptoms. They did, and within a few days, the bump started to grow, and it was beginning to cause Lena pain. Ending up at an orthopedist, the doctor decided to conduct a biopsy. Taking the two-centimeter mass to a lab, it was found Lena was afflicted with Mycobacterium marinum. This infection is common with fish, mostly, who develop a type of tuberculosis illness. When it does appear in humans, which is very, very rarely, it is most often due to someone going into infected waters with an open wound. Armed with the name of the infection, doctors were able to put Lena on a specific type of antibiotic to clear up any rash or infection that remained. But doctors were stumped. How did this toddler end up with not only an illness that's rare in general, but one that is exceptionally rare in humans? It took a few doctor's visits to jog Lena's parents' memories, but eventually, as they discussed her finger injury, it came back to them. They had recalled that back in March, they had gone to Costa Rica for a family vacation. During one of their days relaxing on the beach, Lena was approached by an iguana. Lena stared out at the water, snacking on a piece of cake, as the large lizard came closer and closer. Now, overall, iguanas are very chill, non-human attacking animals that just want to eat berries in trees and fall out of them when they're cold. But in this case, the animal's exposure to humans and their yummy-yummy treats had become a habit, and he needed a fix. The iguana was close enough to Lena that it could bite the back of her hand. That wasn't hard enough to inflict any pain, but it did cause her to drop the cake, which is exactly what the lizard hoped would happen. The iguana grabbed the treat and took off with that funny little leg flappy run they do. <laughs> Lena showed her parents the bite mark. She seemed okay, but they still took her to the local clinic to get it cleaned and to put her on antibiotics. Within just two weeks, the mark was healed and she seemed fine. It wouldn't be until all those months later that the injury and infection would resurface, leading to the surgery. Being that this is the first documented case of a human getting this infection from an iguana, Lena's story is now being shared at medical symposiums around the world. Lena is doing well and is close to 100% recovered. So, is this story of a cake-stealing, infection-spreading iguana true, or is telling a lie like a piece of cake? Well, the marinara had me wondering if maybe it wasn't true. But I do know that that is a real mm. bacterium. So mm. I'm going to go with true. Mm. Interesting. Josh? I feel I, I have a feeling it might be false because there's something that is like hitting my brain. I don't know what it is, but some detail of that story reminded me of something and I was don't know what. Was it a news story maybe? Maybe, yes. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Uh, I'm going to say false. Interesting. Gonna, okay, right, another I'm, divide like last time. Mm -hmm, I like it when we're guess. on opposite <clears throat> ends of the spec. That's right. Rum. Next, we have the story of how gangsters' battles for revenge led to a life-saving tool in Annie, Get Your Gun. Chicago in the early 1920s was a playground for the mob. At the helm was none other than Al Capone. 
The gangster has had many effects on pop culture as he was incredibly famous during his rule. The look of pinstripes and fedoras being the go-to for gangsters is thanks to him. He was mentioned in The Godfather. He appeared in Tintin comic books. He was the inspiration for the book and film Scarface. He's been portrayed on screen by Robert De Niro, Eric Roberts, William Forsyth, Tom Hardy, and, of course, a variation by Al Pacino. He's been referenced in songs by Queen, The Specials, Prodigy, and LL Cool J. There are countless books, movies, songs, art pieces, and more dedicated to the mysterious man who would eventually die at his Miami home after serving over seven years in prison and then being released to a hospital for his severe syphilis. Did you go to lyrics.com for all that info? Uh, <laughs> like my last case? No, I think it was Wikipedia had like a <laughs> list at the bottom. <laughs> Did you know that Al Capone, when he was like, re- you know, retired because of his mental uh, abilities were failing um, from the syphilis, that his bodyguards would watch him sometimes go fishing in his pool in the backyard. That's true. <laughs> yep. Wasn't that the inspiration for Tony on The Sopranos with like the ducks? Oh, with the ducks? Oh, probably. Yeah. That yeah. makes a I lot of sense. I feel like I had heard that before. That's cool. Yeah, syphilis is not good. Get tested, people. <sighs> It'll eat your brain. It's a it silent sure killer. Will. Oof. Before and between his time in Alcatraz, Cook County Jail, and the Atlanta Penitentiary, Al was doing bad things. Being a mob boss came with a high price and a lot of enemies. One of said enemies was Michael Giordano. Michael wasn't a big boss. He actually wasn't any kind of boss, or at least not one that was acknowledged by Capone and his cronies. But Michael didn't care. He wanted a piece of Capone's pie. Michael had been part of the Northside Gang, a rival of the Chicago outfit, which was ruled by Capone. After the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, in which seven members of the NSG were shot and killed in 1929, rumors swirled as to who had been responsible. Maybe vengeful cops, maybe the Egan rats, but Michael was certain it had been Capone. What's an Egan rat? That was another another cool group of guys. Ooh, let's make up our cool group. I wonder was the gangbangers. Is, is Egan uh, is I Egan said, Illinois? Is that like Egan Illinois? Oh, probably. City? Yeah, I think so. Okay, that's good deduction. Um, I said. I said gangbangers the other day and Chloe gasped because I think she just learned like a gangbang is maybe at school. And you're like, oh, we're so far past that being that. But I was talking about literal gangbangers in a gang. Like, oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's funny. I haven't heard that. That's like real late 90s stuff. I know. Look at his pants. He's a real gangbanger. That's what I said. I was joking. <laughs> and she like, like, how dare you talk like that? Oh Mom. my gosh, that's funny. And then I just laughed. I'm like, you, you just don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Call me when you're older. In an attempt to make a name for himself and to show the bosses who would make a great boss, Michael made a move of his own. While this idea was incredibly stupid, he knew to not swing too hard. He certainly wasn't going to take aim at Capone, so he looked further down the ladder. Michael then landed on Frank Nitty, Capone's bestie and fellow tax evader. In the future, Nitty would take over for the outfit when he was only sent to prison for just over a year, compared to Capone's 11-year sentence. But in 1930, they hadn't yet been convicted, and Michael was on a warpath. Knowing the power Nitty had, Michael wasn't planning on messing with him directly, So he took aim, literally, at his wife, Rosa Levitt. On January 22nd, just shy of a year after the Valentine's Massacre, Michael stalked Rosa as she was walking home through Chicago around 11.30 p.m. Right outside the house she shared with Frank, she was gunned down. Hearing the commotion, Frank ran outside, pistol in hand. 
Not finding a fellow gangster in some sort of shootout, he was shocked to see his beloved wife lying on the ground, bleeding to death. Frank was torn between helping Rosa or finding her killer while they were close. Neither choice mattered. There was nothing that could be done to help her, and there was no car or killer in sight. As it always seems to be with the mob or any situation where not overly emotional and reactive men are in charge, it was now Frank who was hellbent on revenge. Proud of his work and hoping it would earn him a higher place in the North Side, Michael wasn't exactly quiet about what he had done. This hadn't been the smartest move on his part. Even if the gangs weren't getting along, they knew better than to mess with the loved one of a very made man. Word quickly got to Frank that it had been Michael who killed Rosa. Michael's pitiful standing in the North Side had Frank reassessing the situation. This had been a personal attack. It wasn't worth getting the North Side and the outfit into a war. He wanted to take things into his own hands and pay Michael back, eye for an eye. Michael also had a lover, Annie Tutasori. They hadn't married yet, but they were planning to and were already living together in sin in a North Side apartment. Yes. You know how those Catholics are. With the lightest twist of a few arms, Frank had Michael's address. That Wednesday, March 9th, was cold and dark. It was around 8.30 p.m., and Frank was at a meeting with the gang, and Annie, as Michael called her, was home alone. As she sat in the bed reading a book, she heard an explosion of sounds coming from the living room. A window in their fourth-story apartment, the one that faced the fire escape and alleyway, had been smashed. Leaving the bedroom to examine the situation, she was shocked to see a man climbing in the window from the fire escape. It was Frank. Annie hadn't been privy to the murder of Rosa or the actions of her betrothed, so she never knew she had been in such danger. After locking eyes, Frank fired a shot at Annie. It caught her arm, spewing blood across the carpet. Terrified, she ran for cover, winding up under the dining table. Frank was quick to catch up, flipping the table away. Running back to the bedroom, Frank fired again. Annie was struck and in bad shape. Crawling closer to the room, seeking safety from the door, it was too late. Frank walked up to her saying, this is for Rosa, before shooting Annie once again, leaving her dead. Approximately three hours later, at almost midnight, Michael returned to his home. Opening the door, the broken glass of the window and flip table were first to catch his attention. Approaching the scene, the pool of blood on the carpet had him screaming out for Annie. Racing through the apartment, he eventually found her in the bedroom. He was too late. She had met her doom at the hand of a mobster, and like with Rosa, nothing could be done. Michael didn't care about getting into any trouble. He just wanted to help Annie, so he called the medics. One of the medics, James Elam, had been developing his own life-saving technique and saw this setting as a perfect place to show his partners what he had been working on. It was clear Annie was gone, but she wasn't officially pronounced dead yet. James wanted to see if his theory worked, and he felt this was a perfect opportunity to show his co-workers the technique. So before they loaded her on the gurney, he asked if she was okay, took her pulse, tilted her head, and attempted an early version of chest compressions. It was clear they weren't going to be of any use, but he knew it was good to practice. Unbeknownst to his fellow medics, James had built a prototype of what would eventually be known as a CPR doll, but he was struggling with one final detail, the face. Knowing how strong and brave the men in the field were, he understood they would be less inclined to breathe into the mouth of a male dummy, so he needed to find a delicate female face that welcomed their attempts to save its life. Although Annie had perished in a terrifying manner, her face after death seemed peaceful to James. And being that this was nearly a hundred years ago and rules were a bit loosey-goosey, 
He asked the mortician, Dr. Paul Woodard, to make what is known as a death mask of Annie. Using plaster of Paris, he was able to do just that, and he gave it to James. James then used the mask as a mold to make for the face for his doll. With the help of toy maker Asmund Ladderall and Dr. Peter Safar, James was able to perfect his doll, which he named Resuscitation Annie, in honor of the woman whose death had inspired him to finish the work. While there is no way to know how many lives have been saved by his groundbreaking technique, it is believed that if everyone was trained in CPR and had practiced breathing into Annie's mouth, 100,000 to 200,000 lives could be saved annually. Frank would go on to be arrested for tax fraud along with his buddy Al Capone. It was documented that Michael was quite distraught after Annie's murder. He fell into alcohol addiction and started to berate his fellow gangsters. His last documented sighting was in June 1931. He may have left the scene on his own, but it's more likely Capone or even his own Northsiders were wanting him to go on a swim in some concrete shoes. So, is this tale of gangster love and loss leading to the design of a life-saving device true, or am I masking the real story? I think it's fake. And you too. Because oh. I believe Rescue Anne was created by a foreigner. You mean the name Asmund Ladral was not enough of a foreign name for but you? But I'm pretty sure it was too, like, was it Norwegian or too doctor? I don't, I just don't, I think it's, I think you're using real stuff mm. to make it sound legit. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say false. I do not want to reveal what I, why I think it's false. Because okay. I don't want. I appreciate and that. And to change her vote. Okay. That's, I mean, she can. It's fine. But I don't want to. You don't want to. I don't what want do to mess mean? with I anything. What do you mean? I said false too. Oh, no. But he's saying that he feels like he knows something the way you know oh, something. Oh, okay. Cool. And he doesn't want it to. Okay. It. I don't think it, will, it actually won't, it wouldn't change your vote. I'm an Interesting idiot, that you little fools are thinking. But it might. Yeah. yeah. Because I want you to doubt your vote. Hmm. And now I, I probably ruined that. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fun. Proceed. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. 
Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. From a young age, Jill Coit, maiden named Billet, always did things her own way. Jill was born in Louisiana in June of either 1943 or 44. Those multiple years aren't due to my lack of research, but due to the fact that Jill liked to lie about everything. Jill's childhood was fairly uneventful. She wasn't a sick kid, no major traumas, although her little brother Mark was born around the time she was six, and Jill always resented him. So maybe his existence alone pushed her into the direction of narcissism, sociopathy, and pathological lying. When Jill was just 17 years old, she met and fell in love with Larry Ihan. Wanting to marry the bricklayer from Indiana, she dropped out of high school. The pair married in the summer of 61. One of the many problems with marrying a teenager is that you are then married to a teenager. So less than a year after saying I do, Jill was saying, I want a divorce and while we're at it, I'm going to take the $280 out of our shared account, hubby. Three years later, Jill met Stephen Moore. Now 21, Jill married an age-appropriate college student. Pregnant just a few months into their marriage, she gave birth to their son Stephen, I would assume junior, in 1965. Then in January of 66, when she was 22 years old and the mother of a young son, she married William Coit Jr., an engineer in Texas. What's that? Did I forget to mention Jill's divorce from Stephen? Well, so did Jill. <laughs> That's because she was still married to him, and she continued to be when she gave birth to baby boy number two, William Andrew Coit, in 1966. Be it because of the illegal nature of bigamy or because her second husband wanted to be in first place, Jill finally divorced Stephen in 1967. A year later, son number three, William Clark Coit III. What's that? Did you think I misspoke because two of her three sons have the same name? Well, I didn't. They're both William. And so far, all of her children have been named after the father. Jill went through life fairly quietly for the rest of the 60s and the start of the 70s. She and third husband William were raising their two Williams and a Stephen in Houston. That is until March 28, 1972. As the senior William was going to bed, the front door was kicked in and he was shot twice in the back, once in the arm and once in the head. Sadly, his killer was never captured. As with any case when a spouse is shot in the back, Jill was looked at as a possible suspect. 
it didn't help her image that just 20 days prior she had filed for divorce. William had claimed the divorce had been her way of trying to get her hands on his money. It also didn't help that right after the shooting, Jill left for New Orleans. Lucky for her, she had a great lawyer in Louis DeRosa. He was able to work his magic, and like Emily's story, he kept her from being questioned. He did this by talking her into institutionalizing herself, avoiding extradition to Houston. Oh my God, what a What a weird double from Shoop and the Poop. <laughs> Fun life hack, if ever you're being hunted by uh, money sharks or whatever they're called, loan, loan sharks, sharks uh, or you're wanted for murder or anything like that, you can apparently just go get hospitalized. But check your state laws. <laughs> <laughs> Officials attempted to get a hearing with a grand jury where they would have had Jill testify, but that never came to fruition. The case went cold and no one seemed to care about seeking justice since it seemed pretty clear who had been to blame. To avoid any more legal issues, at least with William, Jill went to California where she didn't marry Bruce Johansson. Bruce, the wealthy retired businessman in his 90s, went instead the route of adoption. Lawyer Louis DeRosa came to her rescue again, facilitating the adoption. He also helped with the settlement of the estate when Bruce died a year later, through which Jill was awarded some property and cash. In November 1973, Jill married her fourth husband, Donald Brody. He was from Orange, California, where he was a major in the Marines. The love didn't last long with Donald, and just a year and a half later, the couple split. She didn't stay single for long, of course. This time, she picked her husband from the list of men she already knew, marrying the man who had kept her from being looked at as the killer of her husband, the now judge, Louis DeRosa, who was in Mississippi. I saw that coming. They would go on to divorce and marry twice. What? Two years after marrying lawyer Louis, Jill fell in love with Eldon Metzer, an auctioneer in Ohio. Oops. She again forgot to get divorced. She eventually chose Eldon over Louis, who she divorced in 1978. Is there a cap on the number of marriages you can <laughs> I, have? Apparently not. Somewhere along the line, the couple ended up in Haiti. Unfortunately, processing a divorce there didn't actually work as it wasn't recognized as being legal in the U.S. I, know, I also don't know where she's getting all this money to travel like across the country and down to Haiti and, well, I guess from these guys. At some point, she did get a divorce from Eldon. Still married to Louis, she moved to number seven, Carl Steely, a teacher in Indiana. Something we can deduce from this story is that Jill wasn't the best at making decisions. Finally, back stateside, she was able to legally divorce Louis in New Orleans for a second time. The marriage to Carl was one of her longer relationships, and they stayed married for nine years, although they were only together for about seven of them. At the time she left him, she took with her his furniture, a family inheritance, and money from his bank accounts. He would later say that there was an instance in which he was out riding his bike and a car attempted to hit him. He knew that it was Jill, or someone hired by her, attempting to kill him. Before they had officially broken up, Jill and Carl took a vacation to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where Carl was hoping to retire. While there, Jill purchased a bed and breakfast property. Doing renovations on her new business, she met Gerald Boggs, the owner of a local hardware store. Meeting Gerald was the end of her relationship with Carl, and they divorced. She and Gerald married. Sadly, just eight months later, the whole not-divorcing-Carl issue snuck up on her, and the marriage with Gerald was annulled at his behest. 
The couple had put both of their names on the bed and breakfast, so as part of the split, Jill sued Gerald for the $100,000 deed. The Reporter Times article about this case said that the case file, because of the constant bickering, was a foot thick. Whoa. That's a lot of paperwork. Now 48 years old, Jill legally divorced Carl. Thank goodness she did. No, not so she could go back to Gerald, but so she could marry Michael Backus, a phone repairman. Of all things, there isn't proof of them getting hitched, but it was rumored to have happened. Legally married or not, she started to go by Jill Backus. At some point, Jill left Michael in Colorado and went to Texas. The distance, though, wasn't due to her casually leaving another lover in the dust. In Michael Backus, Jill had found more than just another lover. He was someone that was happy to work in cahoots with her to see her malicious plans through. That's why they didn't just settle into their marriage, real or sham, to live a quiet life. Instead, Jill met Roy Carroll in Houston, and soon after, the pair wed in Las Vegas. Sticking to her type of military men, Roy was a U.S. Navy chief petty officer. Everything changed for Jill on October 21, 1993. Gerald Boggs, husband number nine, was discovered dead on his kitchen floor by his brother. Gerald had been clubbed with a shovel, tased, and shot three times in the chest. Given her history, it didn't matter that the couple was divorced. Police looked at Jill as a suspect. Doing so, they learned that she had called one of her sons on the day Gerald was murdered, saying, quote, Hey, baby, it's over and it's messy. When questioned, Jill claimed to have been camping in the Fort Collins area with Michael Backus, not husband Roy, during the murder. Without a time of death, the camping alibi didn't really matter, so investigators got to work. Gerald had last been seen by relatives the day before, but he had been out and about that morning when he went to The Shack, the restaurant he went to every morning for the same meal, eggs, hash browns, toast, and coffee. During the autopsy, remains of hash browns were found in Gerald's stomach, telling officials he had died just a few hours before being discovered. This was a problem for Jill. Her alibi was focused on the time she assumed the investigators would have assumed he had died, which was the night before. As for the morning when he was actually killed, she and Michael didn't really have alibis. Because of that, search warrants were issued for Jill and Michael's personal properties. In Jill's car, a taser was found with prongs that matched up to the marks on Gerald. This was just one of many pieces of evidence. Digging deeper, it was learned Michael had asked at least one co-worker if they would be interested in killing Gerald. They weren't, but they also didn't report the question until they were interviewed. It was also found that, unbelievably, Jill somehow convinced people she was a psychologist and she was even treating patients. During one counseling session, she made a proposition to a patient. Thankfully, the woman also refused, but again, she did not report it. In one more disgusting act, Jill asked her own son if he would murder Gerald. He said no. She then asked if he would help her. He said no. She then asked if he would help dispose of the body if she left it outside for him. He said no. Not wanting to turn in his mother, he simply told her that if she was going to do something stupid, she should wear gloves. Side note, hey guys, if someone asks you if you would be interested in being hired to kill someone... They're probably looking for someone to kill someone. So you could like <laughs> report that. It's okay to do. You might be saving someone's life. Okay. But I don't want to get my mommy mad at me. Oh, God. The patient. Can you imagine your psychologist? You think you're visiting your psychologist and they're like, do you want to make Isn't some money? Isn't there a show out right now? 
Well, there's the patient, but that's very different. (laughs) In just a month, the lovebirds from hell were arrested for the first-degree murder of Gerald Boggs. In May of 1995, Michael Backus was sentenced to a mandatory life term without parole, plus 48 years for conspiracy. Jill was also sentenced to life without parole and 48 years. She and Michael were both ordered to pay a fine of $1 million. This wasn't for reparations, but to keep either of them from making money off of their story. So if she had sold her bizarre tale for a book or movie, the money would go straight to the fine, not her pockets. The judge knew she was no good and wanted to do what he could to keep her from victimizing even more people. So why of all the husbands did Jill want Gerald dead? While also keeping in mind she probably did shoot William. This was because Gerald never gave Jill the deed to the bed and breakfast. The murder occurred the day before a trial regarding a lawsuit that Gerald had brought accusing Jill of fraud and bigamy was set to begin. This was why the pair made their way into the home the morning on the 21st, where they ambushed, tortured, and killed him. Jill would, of course, appeal her sentences. She lost. In the late 90s, it was clear she had not learned any kind of lesson and that her evil was insidious. With access to the newfangled internet, she posted on a date-a-prisoner site and said she was hoping to find a husband. Of course. The site was eventually taken down by the state of Colorado. I'm not sure if the entire site itself was removed or if it was just her page. This, of course, did not stop her. In 1998, she had her own page on another inmate site which said, Want U.S. citizenship? Marry an inmate. Oh, boy. Other appeals and motions would come and go, all being denied. In 2002, she filed a request for an investigation into her treatment while in prison for murder. She complained she had not been given her therapeutic back and wrist braces because, of course, she needed those. And on a more serious note, she did claim that she had a finger broken by a guard and that she had been sexually abused. It's unclear what the outcome of that request was, but given her history, I would assume it was denied. It is reported she continues to seek another husband. The only good thing about that is that at least she won't be able to kill the guy. He can Google her and then make his own financial decisions. What's most amazing about this case is that it all came down to hash browns. If Gerald didn't get the same meal every day, and if that time of death had been any earlier or later, it could have been very possible that Jill could have just done what she always did, gotten away with murder. Instead, those shredded potatoes were the key to breaking the case and solving his murder. So, is Jill a real black widow out to marry and kill as she pleases, or is this a lie that should be hashed out? This one's hard. I'm going to go with false. Mm. I don't really have a reason. I'm just going with my gut here. I don't either, but I'm going to say true. Oh, the thrill. There were just so many details and hash browns. There were a lot of details. Mm. I love hash browns. Um, By the way, I I Googled just now. um, The person with the most marriages is a man named Glenn Wolf, and he was married 31 times, (gasps) and only one of them was annulled. Did they all last just like a year? I, let's see, um, 26, 28, 31, 32, 32, 35, 36, 36, 39, 40, 46, 48, 49, 48. You sound oh, like an boy. auctioneer. 54, 55, 58, 58, 60, And you have to meet the people. 64, 68, 69, 70, oh, 77, nice. 79, 79, 82, 84, 95, 96. 96. That's wild. What is happening? That's all the years he was married. 
every year that Whoa. he had a marriage. That's what, because you have to meet people and like fall in love and then decide to get married and then plan some sort of something. Not crazy. And also when you're, by the time you're at like 17 and you're like, you'll be lucky number 18. And two of his wife? Oh, that one's the same one. Okay, oh, yeah. so one of them's the same one. Yeah, I bet Goodwin, there's more than one. Back to backs. <laughs> this is so interesting. Wow. I had to know like who has had the most mm -hmm. marriages. So I just Googled it. Is he okay? Let me talk to him about what is up. All right, here's our last story. It's called A Toothy Falsehood. Well, speaking of what we were just talking about, there have been a lot of conversations surrounding technology recently. Smartphones are old news. Now we're occupied by the idea of AI replacing all of our jobs and writing our homework. Another hot topic is self-driving cars. Don't even get me started on the death machines known as Tesla. Can't wait to invite you to ride in mine. <laughs> well, for more on why they're so scary, you can watch Hulu's New York Times Presents Season 2, Episode 1. I mean, I know New York Times is kind of yikes in and of itself, but all of this information was jarring. What's wrong with New York Times? Well, you know, they can be. They've been uh, releasing stuff before they're like really fact checking. And oh, some boy. and some like there was a big issue with the Jordan Neely thing. The, when, the guy that was murdered on yep. the subway, they've very much presented it like Marine attacks homeless mm -hmm. man kind of a thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So they're they're having some issues. Recently, Ford, another car company created by a maniacal Nazi supporter, announced, or perhaps it was quietly discovered, that they had filed for a very specific patent. Now, all of this part, this part of the story is true. They have big plans for their future self-driving cars. They hope that they will be able to implement the technology to punish the vehicle's owner. If you default mm. on your payments, the car can then be remotely repossessed. I've read about this. Okay, so there are pros. You know, if you can't pay for your car and they just want the car back, okay, I get that. You can't just keep your car. And repossession is also very dangerous for both parties. Mm -hmm. So removing the human element will definitely be more safe. Now, cons. First off, excuse you? And what? The thing with technology is that as soon as you think of the supposed good idea, you have to also think of the worst thing that could be done. So Ford. You're telling us that a disgruntled guy who works at Ford won't then get into the system and have his girlfriend or wife's car, who probably has a restraining order against him, just driven to him or driven to some or location? Or like the kids are in it. And yeah, it like how back. can they be sure no one's in the car? Also, there are clerical errors where somebody actually did pay and oh, yeah. there's a mistake. Didn't that happen to a guy with Tesla that the car locked him out? Because I think something like that, pay? yeah. But he's like, I did pay. Yeah, it's like... So we're going to trust the banks to all work right. We're going to trust people with access to this, not mess with people. Seems a little dangerous. I'm not excited about it. So I get it. Ford is a business. They sell you a car. You pay for it. You don't. They take it back. Well, one guy had those same feelings about 100 years ago, but it wasn't about a Ford, but it did involve a grill. On April 13th, 1922, barber John Bush was walking down the street. It was a lovely day, and he was enjoying his stroll through St. Louis. Suddenly, John was attacked. He wasn't hit, but he suddenly felt a hand enter his mouth. Getting his bearings, he looked at his assailant and realized he knew him. It was his dentist, Dr. Frank Passebeck. Pulling his hand away, Frank was now in possession of John's false teeth. <gasps> 
John called the police and had Frank arrested. The dentist was then charged with larceny. I'm not sure how an assault charge wasn't involved, but it was the 20s. Things were wild. When interviewed as to why the dentist would rip teeth out of a man's face, the dentist said he had actually made those falsies and John never paid the bill. With John refusing to pay, Frank did the only thing he could. He, quote, took it out of his hide. He repossessed that mouth. That's right. So take that, Ford. Sometimes the direct human experience of repossession (laughs) is needed. Maybe the dramatic interaction caused John to think twice before skipping a bill. Good thing it wasn't the other way around. I would hate to hear of John the barber getting his payment back from a customer. Is this tale of a biting redemption true, or am I lying through my teeth? Well, based on my previous answers, I'm going with true. Oh, mixing because it up. I, I think you do two and two, but Ooh. I don't know. That one was oh. short and sweet. Oh. I like the idea of it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, real human interaction. That's only the sometimes only way to have empathy. Just, sometimes you just want a face-to-face encounter. <laughs> I'm going true. Okay. So we got two trues on that. Okay. Let's get to the answers. Yay. Okay, Leap and Lizard. What were your guesses? I said true. You said true. Josh, you said false. I did. Okay. Do you want to hear my reasons? Yes. Of course we do. Uh, It reminded me of something that we watched where someone got bit or something and they had like eggs in their body or something Oh, interesting. Oh, you were like, that could happen. It reminds me of that. Interesting. Okay. That's why I said false. All right. Leap and Lizard, the story of Lena getting the first ever lizard to human mycobacterium marinara, as I like to say. (laughs) Uh, That is true. All of it. She is doing well, but she is, as of April this year, still recovering. Oh, my gosh. All right. Wow. So did Al Capone's actions lead to the creation of the life-saving recitation Annie? I said false. You said false. Josh, you said false as well. I said false for, um, can I tell you my reasons? Sure. Why do you ask us every time? <laughs> yes. Because he's a quiet boy and you he needs tell permission. Us, Open your mouth and I'll repossess your teeth. <laughs> it reminded me of the song Smooth Criminal. Oh, interesting. Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal. Oh, I've never really listened to it. <laughs> yeah, just bloodstains on the oh. something, Annie. Oh. You said okay. Oh. Annie, just, are you okay? And gangsters. Okay, Annie. Okay. Um, so that's why I said this crash. story is false. Yeah. But there are some connections. Here is how I got to talking about the mafia. Before Michael Jackson's album Bad was released, he cut a song which had been called Al Capone. Oh. Oof. Not good. Mm-mm. That song did not end up on the album, but the bones of it were used to create the smash hit Smooth Criminal. Jackson got the idea for Annie, Are You Okay? Are You Okay? Are You Okay, Annie? After learning about the creation of the CPR doll and how that phrase is the first thing you say to the doll while in training. The names of the doctors and toy maker were accurate, 
but they had used the face of a woman who had drowned in the 1880s. They did choose a woman so that men would be more apt to practice the procedure, but the doll itself was not first presented to the world until 1960. Al Capone and Frank Nidia and Rosa were all real. Rosa was not murdered. Michael did not exist. The guys were involved in those gangs. The Valentine's Day Massacre and the tax evasion were all real. A few months ago, and this all happened, I decided to do this because Josh and I were at a game night and Smooth Criminal came on. And I think we were joking about the words or I think I even said, like, I should see if this is a real story. And we realized that, like, no one at the table knew the words to the song. Like I was just, just thinking, I don't know them. Anyway, so when I realized that no one knew the lyrics, I was like, oh, well, then that'd be a really fun way to turn the lyrics of that mm. song, the story of that lyric that's a good idea uh into a story so um oh thank you so i knew and i knew about the doctors that invented it and i figured i figured since i hadn't heard about that case mm. that it you were just like well, using real information uh yeah so some of the lyrics are as he came into the window it was the sound of a crescendo he came into her apartment oh. he left a blood stains on the carpet mm-hmm. she ran under she ran underneath the table he could see she was unable so she ran into the bedroom she was struck down it was her doom annie wow. are you okay are you okay annie that's literally all the lyrics you've been hit by story. you've been struck by a smooth criminal well thank you Okay, next we have Hash It Out, the story of multiple husband having Jill Coit. Was this true or false? I said false, but I really had no reason to. I just <laughs> was making a choice. Okay. I said true because of the stomach content information, mm. stomach contents. Which that, I love that little detail. Yeah, it was good. And I love hash browns. Me too. That story was true. Oh, Every yeah. last... My first wrong wow. answer. Oh, Every last bit of it. She has exhausted all of her appeals, but she is uh, going to be spending the rest of her life in the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Well, shit. Does that mean I got my last one wrong, too? I hate being wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think I didn't watch it because I didn't want to tweak how I was saying it, but I do believe there is uh, a forensic files at the very least on her story and on the stomach contents. Mm, Maybe that's why it's familiar to me. Oh, probably. I'm, I'm sure you've I'm, seen it. Yeah. You're a real forensic file mm-hmm, boy. Mm-hmm. Okay, finally, toothy falsehood. Did John get his teeth repossessed by his dentist? I got to say true. You said true. I said this, true. That, okay. what, what year was this? Uh, 1920s? Yes. Uh, 1922. True. All of this story, including the Ford repossession plan, is true. Nice. Yeah. I only got one wrong. I could not find an outcome regarding Frank's legal issues, but I'm sure everything ended up being squared away. And I hope John got some replacement teeth and paid for them. Wow. <laughs> I love it. This is so fun. It is the most fun. <laughs> Can't wait till episode three. So that had two truths and one false. So we'll see for next time. Wait. Wait, what? No, it had. All right, That's I'm only sorry. three. Okay. It had three, three it truths, had three truths and one, and one false. <laughs> Don't make you me guys do math. You made up the story yourselves. <laughs> deduce my math. Did, can you deduce the true number of what I'm saying? Because I cannot. I don't do math. I'm bad at number time. Time for lunch. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. One of the best parts of traveling is exposure to the local wild wildlife. For four-year-old Lena, the wildlife she encountered. I encountered it too. <laughs> with Microbacterium marinarum. This infection is common in fish mostly. Oh, you said marinarum earlier. Marina- like marinara sauce. Oh. 
Marinum. Ha ha. Everyone, I, it's a shock. I she can't like, read. This is not true. She can't read. Da, 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 That's so da, da, da. shocking. I can't even believe that she can't say words right or read. This is new <laughs> and weird. Marinarum. Ma- well, y'all are making sauce. me try to say these hard ass words that might be y'all, real or fake. You inflicted it on yourself. I know. One of said enemies was Michael Giord. Mm. Yeah, Giordano. Okay. Michael Giordano. <laughs> Giordano, thank Ooh, you. I want some. Ooh, DiGiorno's, <laughs> DiGiorno's uh, croissant crust. Oh, I haven't tried that. Is it good? It's yes. so good. Mm, the flaky I'm layers. I'm gonna so need flaky. a lunch soon. I'm yeah. gonna need a lunch. I'm gonna need a lunch. Marinarum. Uh, mm-hmm. We can order some lunch while we print for our photos. Marinarum. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Compared to Capone. Compared to Capone. I want a calzone real bad. I know, right? Ooh, some mozzarella. I'm so hungry. What <laughs> On January 22nd, <clears throat> hello? The internet didn't tell me that that was a thing. <laughs> Help so. me, internet. I'll Fix figure me. it out this week. I'll ask ChatGPT, oh, my God. new best friend. Please stop promoting it. <laughs> I can't help it. It's so convenient. I've used it so much this week. For work? Yeah, just like writing emails. Oh or I went Because I countered my offer for my new job. And then you're going to get fired and not get paid any money because robots are cheaper. You ah! There are certain jobs you cannot do with a robot. I need my Bic Atlantis. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Favorite? This is a Sharpie S gel, and it is oh, my favorite. Oh, those are my favorite. Yeah, I have that's a like bunch a of them. The best pen I've ever used in my oh, life. Oh, my Besides God. Besides a Bic Atlantis. Well, do you remember, like, the first year we were doing this? You and I bonded over a pen we both had and loved. Yes. It was the Bic Atlantis. I, I do remember that. And then now we both have another new that's pen wild. we love. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> we are siblings, I think. <laughs> right. Never know with Keith Rowney. Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> he asked the Morti- you could uh, say Mortish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did say Mortish. Yeah.